It's a great understatement to say that we live in a time of great change. And I'm wondering if this is working. <laughs> no. It's on. You can hear? You can hear, but they It's change. <laughs> okay, now it's good. All right. Okay, good. So it's a great understatement to, stay, to say that we live in a time of this incredible changing environment. The physical environment is changing, of course. We see it in planetary levels. We see it in lo on local levels. The economic environment is changing, of course, and it, we, we feel it in our own hometowns, people close to us, our relatives. The social and political landscape, too, is constantly in this flux within our own local communities and between countries. So we're faced with so much change that it's no wonder that there's more and more anxiety in our families, in our communities, in our social structure. No wonder that there's more and more depression. Um, and I say that you know, with great compassion. Change is a fact of life. Of course, we know that. It seems so evident and so true. And yet, there's something that we can't keep up with in this pace that this world is going in, or that we're going through. And change, even for the better, is so challenging. So it's understandable that we feel more vulnerable. We feel um, less able to face things as they are. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions that we're constantly bombarded by. And I mentioned these earlier. Praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. Every day, every sitting, we see it happening. Um, in the morning, we have, I don't know about you, but in the morning, the mind is fresh and clear and wonderful sittings in the morning, usually for me as a yogi. And in the afternoons, it's, you know, pain in the body and wanting that cup of tea and wanting that bell to ring, just like you. It's not so much different. One of our friends and yogis says, there's nothing like a great sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you just think it's going to happen the whole time, but it's just not, you know, change. It's just change. So all of us, in one way or another, ask ourselves important questions, I hope, how, that how can we maintain a balance of staying attentive yet compassionate to all of this flux in our life, the praise and blame, the gain and the loss, the pleasure and the pain, these worldly conditions. How can we stay within them and, and more times than not, feel balanced within them and not paralyzed by them. What we're doing here on retreat is giving ourselves a permission to explore what's going on within us so that we're not so distracted by the uh, to-do list of our lives. We're not going here and there trying to accomplish the things we need to accomplish, being responsible human beings and citizens of our community and planet. But we're able to just open and see what's going on in our minds and in our hearts to see how we're really being human. What comes up in this humanness of our hearts and our minds and learn how to accept that with more balance, more clarity. So this mindful attention that we're giving our practice, this ability to 
stay with, to be with, to live with the fluctuations of the vicissitudes of life is a great practice that we're doing. Sometimes, you know, sitting here doing nothing feels like we're really doing nothing and maybe I should be out doing my to-do list, getting things accomplished. We don't realize sometimes the incredible strength that all of us are gaining by being able to open to, see more clearly, live with what we have to live with inside instead of the usual distractions that we sometimes place ourselves in because we can't face what's going inside, what's going on inside of our hearts and in our minds. So <clears throat> a great support of mindfulness is equanimity. One of the great supports of mindfulness of equanimity is equanimity. It makes equanimity really strong. The ability to face whatever needs to be faced with that unflinching, balanced mind and heart comes with equanimity. We need this quality to navigate the inner terrain of our hearts as we're doing here, and we need this quality after we've uh, uh, navigated this inner terrain, discovered what's happening there. We need it to be able to navigate the outer terrain, our relationship in the world with our loved ones, with our community, in the social structure that we live in. So equanimity implies balance. It, you know, the, the first few letters of it, equanimity, implies that kind of balance. But when we feel it, when it really happens, when we're facing life and we know we can be there in an, with life, however it's presenting itself, we can be with it in an unflinching way, it feels not only balanced, but it feels very, very spacious. The ability to have a heart and a mind, as uh, one of Sharon Salzberg's books is entitled, A Heart as Wide as the World that can accept all of what the inner world has to offer, all of what the outer world has to offer, without closing down to any of it, which we usually do, and very understandably so, because it's hard to be with, it's hard to open to. That spaciousness is that big space that can contain pleasure and pain and everything in between. Whatever the human heart can live out is what it can also hold. Gain and loss, birth and death, everything that comes in between, all the conditions of life is what we learn to open to when we come to a practice like this. There's a, a wonderful African-American minister by the name of Reverend Howard Thurman, and he wrote something that has continued to uh, sustain me, to nourish me, to give me guidance, to ask questions that help me to look for an answer, to see how I can respond. So this is from his writing entitled, Deep is the Hunger. How may one work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes of cruelty and joy, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. So that part about seeing the world with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit is something that I wonder about in myself with every situation that I face. So as I engage with the various situations in my life, with my immediate family, with my friends, my dharma circles, my, my community circles in life, I ask myself when situations arise where it might be so wonderfully joyful that it could produce some attachment to that joy, which it often does. I don't want it to go away. I want it to last. 
or it could be so painful that I want to push that moment away so quickly because I can't stand being in that pain. So I ask myself, can I just be with this? Can I see this situation in myself or when I see a difficult situation in my life, in my family, in my community? Am I able to view that with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? Not so I can just cop out from it, but so that it can be seen clearly and I don't need to flinch away from it. I want to see clearly so I can respond in the best way possible. So I can respond from a place which is supported by harmony, by not causing any harm, or maybe maintain that if it's already there. And sometimes I see that I'm not doing that, that I'm drawing upon unhealthy habit patterns, patterns that strike out at what is painful or unpleasant, patterns that cling to what is pleasant because I don't want it to go away, or patterns that insist that things be in a different way with my family or with my community or with the world because it shouldn't be this way. So there's a pushing away of what is, and there's a holding on, some kind of righteous indignation to how I think it should be. And that's really, really painful. When there's equanimity with those kinds of situations, it's, there's the ability to be with it, not push it away if it's painful, not hold on if it's pleasurable, but allow it to be so that it can be enjoyed if it's pleasurable, in it, enjoyed in its passing moments, and also if it's painful to understand really deeply that this too is impermanent. So I ask myself if I'm drawing upon unhealthy habit patterns of reactivity when I'm facing what I need to face in the world. And as one of our teachers, our elder senior teachers, says of herself, a, a Dharma teacher, and we also Dharma teachers in the world, it's not like we're floating on a cloud, you know, and just being in the beauty of life. It, it may seem so, but um, as Ruth Dennison says, we're not licking the honeypot, darling. She puts that last bit of it there. And it's, it's really essential to have some measure of balance, of inner balance, to be able to open actually to all the pain in the world that we are open to, that we see within people like you who come to the Dharma. Um, your pet pleasures and pains are not very different from our own or from many people at different places in the world. So when I look in an honest way with what's happening inside of myself, all of those things come up. Pleasure, which brings attachment and clinging. Pain, which brings the reactivity of aversion. Sometimes equanimity and inner balance. Calmness, spaciousness. But not all the time. There's still work to be done. So with the trainings that we have here, especially the training in the precepts, we see that we have enough clarity when we find some aversion in the mind or some attachment to the way we want it to be, we can know that that's happening inside with some measure of equanimity because we know what's going on within us and we develop equanimity towards our internal world. So as the Buddha said, we develop equanimity externally toward the external conditions and towards the internal conditions. And when we understand what's going on in the internal conditions, we can see that there's aversion or attachment there. And we can refrain from acting it out because of the precepts. But sometimes we need greater than that. 
we need the training of equanimity so that we're inclining the mind, as I talked about earlier. We're inclining the mind there over and over again in our practice. So in an experiential way, equanimity can be defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Now, if you look at it truthfully, you see that when things have already happened, it's already beyond our control. And so to react to what has already happened is not so intelligent sometimes. You know, I'm, I mean, we, we may be able to do something about it, and we may have influence uh, with our actions and with the way that we just are with things. But many times we see something happen and we get mad because it happened. This doesn't help us at all, this kind of reactivity. When we are thrown off balance by events beyond our control and we realize that it's already happened, it's already beyond our control. What can I see about my inner world that maybe when I see what's going on inwardly, I can take a step, I can say a word, I can make an action that's coming from clear seeing, not from reactivity. When we react to what's going on with aversion or ill will, with any form of the defilements, we're not making the world a better place. So we do have huge influence over how we respond to the events of life, even though we don't have much influence because it's already happened. We can refrain from rushing into a reaction out of compulsion. Sometimes it's a compulsion to get even. Sometimes it's a compulsion to be right. I have a, a friend who was in practice here at the three-month course, and um, she was still going through some difficulties because she had to pack up her whole house to get here. And um, she and her partner were here, and they were still having this ongoing thing about what they left and what they brought, and you know. And she came to me with a lot of um, painful reactivity for a few times. And finally she said, she came one day, maybe on the third time that she saw me, and she said, you know, Kamala, I'd rather be free than right. You know, not, she didn't have to be right about what she thought, what should have been packed and what should have been left. And she was trying to make that assertion that from that reactivity to her partner. But in having some equanimity about it, she just felt free from all that reactivity. It just freed her from all of that, just letting it go so easily. We can take time to discern what's going on. One of our colleagues calls this, our colleague Gil Fransdale calls this, the ability to stand in the center and see all sides. This is what equanimity helps us to do, to take the middle path. When we're on the middle path, we can see to the left, we can see to the right, we can see in front. If we turn around, we can see in the back. We can see all sides. We don't have to fall to either side because we can maintain our balance, standing in the center and seeing all sides. So this is the aspect of equanimity re regarding balance, this ability to stay centered. We also uh, have that phrase, to see without being caught by what is seen. Caught means just being so involved in what is being experienced or seen that we can't see the, the forest for the trees. We're just so caught in some little space of how we want it to be or how we don't want it to be. So not being caught by what is being experienced or what is being seen. In India, um, my first teacher, Manindraji from India, 
would define this as seeing with patience. And he says, like when we see our children or our loved ones go through troubled times or difficulties, we see it with patience. Or maybe the children, when they're whining and crying, I mean, not all the time, but we can have some ability to see that experience with patience. So balance and patience, those are aspects of equanimity. And steadiness, a kind of steadiness of mind, a a feeling that you really, when you're standing in the center, no matter what happens, it's not going to blow you one way or the other. So you feel that you're so imbalanced that you fall over and you can't stand on your own two feet to be able to respond if you need to. In the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses by the Buddha, there's a metaphor of a rock that maintains the steadiness. And the Buddha uses this metaphor to describe equanimity. Steadiness, which is a function, it said, of this strong balance of mind called equanimity. Steadiness is a function of equanimity. And so in this uh, collection of verses, the Buddha says, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame, by gain or loss, by joy or sorrow. When it says not moved, it doesn't mean that that person is not connected or is just like a dry, flat slate and doesn't, isn't his heart or her heart isn't moved. It means that that person just doesn't fall over through some kind of imbalance in experiencing it. When the heart and mind is stirred by the winds of change, we can still be, be equanimous. We can feel that change. We can open to it. We can know it really clearly so that it can be responded to if need be. But it doesn't knock us over so we are weak and don't have strength. There are many times in life when we need to know we can rely on this steadiness, on this balance. I have a friend who I saw this balance and steadiness in, just experience with her, her great gain and loss in her life. Um, She has said time and time again that accepting things as they are has been the greatest strength for her in her life because of the things that she has gone through. So, I tell the story with her permission. A few years ago, one of her grown sons disappeared. This is a friend of mine, of ours on Maui, that belongs to our Dharma group. And her son, uh, in, her, in his early 20s, just all of a sudden disappeared from, from Maui. They didn't know where he was, if he was dead or alive. And of course, this was a great painful experience for her. They did whatever they could to find him. She needed to keep her heart open about it, of course. She didn't give up. She didn't just say, this is how it is and give up. She said, this is how it is. My son is gone. I need to look for him. I need to do what I can to find him. She held an inner vigil of patience and steadiness all throughout this time, through the years that We knew her while her son was missing. And they couldn't, nobody, the police friends didn't come up with where he might be. So of course, this was a great loss to her, a great sorrow, very, very painful. But she kept staying within uh, her heart. She kept it open. She practiced a lot of equanimity about it. So eventually, um, she and her husband decided to leave Maui, and they sold their beautiful home on on the cliffs of uh, the north of Maui. And they had a great gain by selling their home at that time. It was before this economic crash. And they decided, well, they've had enough of 
just mourning so much and, and so much grieving that they were going to go and around the world and go visit one of their daughters in Spain where she was going to give birth to a child. So they took a long route around the world and went to India and Thailand. But just before she left, after selling her house and doing all of that, her son appeared and it was a great gain for her. She was, she was, um, she was happy, but not in such an exuberant way. She just had this quiet joy that understands that anything can happen at any time. So she wasn't just going to grasp onto him for her dear life. So she had this quiet joy about his being found, but they still went on their trip. They had their house sold. While in Asia, her partner came, um, something happened and they found that he had some kind of serious um, growth in somewhere in his body and it needed surgery immediately and it was really scary for a while. We were riding back and forth. And so she was in this great place of fear and then it turned out all right. You know, they removed everything and it turned out all right. So there was that big up and down. She decided to have her eyes done, uh, checked and got some kind of um, um, operation on her eyes and thought for a while she was going to be blind. And, but her sight came back. You know, what was happening was unusual. So there was a lot of gain and loss for her during this trip. She got to Spain and uh, her daughter gave birth to a beautiful baby beautiful child and not too long after the daughter gave birth she had a call from her friends on the mainland and she had another son who out of the blue just died just like that you know he actually it was an accident or something and she was just devastated by it she opened her heart and she held her devastation with as much balance of mind, with as much steadiness as she could. But of course, it was hard for her. Of course it was. If she didn't have equanimity, it would have been much harder for her. We met at dinner um, just before the funeral of her son. Steve and I were on the mainland and she was there too. And she said that if it weren't for the Dharma, she wouldn't be able to live through that. Just a few days ago, she wrote an email, and this is what she said. I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing my son, along with the love and joy of who he was. I'm staying connected to both. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger. And I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. So this is our practice of equanimity. We learn to open to whatever there is with as much balance as we can. Sometimes we don't feel we even have any balance when we're applying or bringing equanimity in. But if we, didn't even, if we didn't have that little bit, it would be much worse. It would be much harder. So the balance, the patience, the steadiness like a rock, the understanding of how things are. It said that the proximate cause for equanimity to arise is understanding that situations, events come together in life, outer events, inner events come together because of unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions. We don't have control over all these unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions. This is the meaning of all beings are owners of their actions. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. So 
this metaphor of the sky is used to describe what it feels like for the heart and mind to be infinitely spacious so that, as my friend said, it could hold that pain and hold that joy and be connected with both, not push one out because the other is there, not ignore, not choose, not prefer, but to really be with it as it is. Not that, again, not that we're a doormat to it, but when we have equanimity, it can be felt with tenderness, with balance. So this spaciousness, that it can contain all the dualities and diversities of the world, that we were able to say, this is, it's all part of life. It's not just what, how we want it to be. And we can't push away how we don't want it to be. A lot of our pain is about this, about wanting it to be otherwise, not accepting how it is. It's not that we condone the evil and the hardship of the world, not that we condone the war and the hatred and the ill will, but if we don't accept it, push it away, it's just causing more pain in our own hearts. It's said that <clears throat> genuine loving kindness has a spaciousness of equanimity because true loving kindness includes everyone, not leaving anyone out of your heart. This afternoon, after we did the equanimity practice, we did some metta practice, loving kindness practice. And when we open our hearts to include everyone in the room, everyone on this land, everyone in the world, this happens because of equanimity, the ability to do this. It, um, it dissolves the boundaries between oneself and other, between who we want to leave out if we think about it too much. And when we don't think about it so much and we just radiate our love, how it can, everyone can be included. It's said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything, yet possess nothing. That can encompass everything, yet possess nothing. So in the practice of metta, we begin with oneself and we develop the capacity to offer love to oneself, to benefactor, a dear friend, a neutral person, people we don't know, and even those difficult persons in our lives. Um, sometimes in the beginning it's hard, but when we keep at it over and over again, we see that it's not so hard. Sometimes I've been, um, when I've done metta practice, there are people in my life that I felt so like closed down to in the past, it's not happening so much now, that just to even think of them in a category like the difficult person, I couldn't even put them there. But bit by bit, I could see that I could put that person in that category. And then after a while, spontaneously, that person would come up in the loved one category. And then there would be times when that person would come up in a benefactor category. And I would see that, that um, you know, they were getting promotions all the time. <laughs> and those boundaries were dissolving between oneself and other. So this is a story I want to tell you about Manindraji, one of our first teachers, and how he didn't push anyone out of her, his heart. He, he just saw that people needed love. And he, what he wanted to do is give his love. So there was this time um, when Steve wasn't in my life yet, and we lived in a home. I lived in a home in a small town on the island of Maui. And that home, people thought, was haunted. You know, we got it at such a good price because nobody would buy it <laughs> for a long time. Imagine a home in Hawaii on Maui that cost $89,000. Um, so 
this was a time when Manindra was recovering from a surgery that he had, and so he stayed with us for a couple of months, and I was trying to help him through his recovery period. During that time, there was a young man who actually was quite harmless. He lived in our neighborhood, and he'd been breaking into homes and going into the medicine cabinets and getting what he could get, you know, from the medicine. He kind of knew what medicine would do what, uh, the uppers or downers, and he would use them. So one day he came into our house when I wasn't there. It was just Manindra, nobody else was there, and Manindra was in the back bedroom doing his uh, letter writing to all of his yogi friends. And um, this person came in and apparently came down the hallway, the same hallway that Manindra's bedroom was off of that hallway. Off of that hallway also was the bathroom with the medicine cabinet. And like all the homes in that area, you kind of knew where things were because they were kind of made alike, one of those track homes. So Manindra hears something. He tells me this story later. He hears something and he comes out of the, of the um, room and he sees this person about to go into the bathroom. Okay, I want to stop here for a minute to describe Manindra. Manindraji is this really beautiful Indian man. He died three years ago with this gorgeous, shiny, dark skin, a bald head, and he always wore white robes. So he's this shiny man in white robes. <laughs> so this young man meets up with Manindra and Manindra says, when he meets up with the guy, I said, well, what happened? And he said, the man screamed. <laughs> he said, ah, because he sees Manindra, you know, this guy in white robes, thinking he's a ghost, probably, in a haunted house. And so he runs out of the house. And I asked Manindra Ji, well, what did you do? And he said, I ran after him. <laughs> So you could just see his white robes, you know, <laughs> flying. In the, he runs after him, and I said, well, why? And he said, he needed help. And I asked him, I told him, stop, stop, you need help, you need help. Just with all the loving kindness in his heart. It wasn't like he feared him. I mean, he could probably see that the young man feared Manindraji. He could see the world with quiet eyes. You know, he could see that the person needed help. It, it wasn't that his mind was being flavored or screened, the, the screening out from uh, fear or from aversion was happening. He just saw clearly what needed to be done. He wasn't thrown off by events beyond his control. He was re able to remain steady well, the person never got his help. He got off on the bicycle really fast, he said. So this is that kind of big enough heart to just keep everyone in your heart. Don't push anyone away. Love everyone, serve everyone, feed everyone, like Neem Karoli Baba says. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. This is another quality of equanimity, being able to, you can see it coming sometimes. You can see when the mind starts going to aversion or starts going to clinging. And before it goes there, you can just rest the mind back in the middle because somehow you see it coming around the corner. When Manindra was with me, um, I tried to do my best to cook for him, but as many of you have appreciated great Indian food. Um, I was nowhere near being uh, any kind of a good cook for him. And he would stand with me beside the stove and put the spices in that we had and help me to um, cook things for him that he would like. And one day I saw that he was getting irritated. I could just see it, you know, in his body language and the way he would hold his lips tight and he would squint his eyes. And so <laughs> I said, Manindraji, are you getting angry at me? Are you upset or something like that? And he said, oh, yes. He said, 
anger is there, but I am not anger. You know, he wasn't identified with it, in other words. He just saw this anger coming up, and he, but he didn't let it out. He told me truthfully what was happening when I asked him the question. And he said, you know, when anger is there, there's a signal. There's a sign in the body you feel. You feel trembling. You feel hot. You feel like saying something you, you shouldn't say. Things like that, he said. He said, you can feel it coming. So when you can feel it coming, you, you just refrain. You don't act it out. Maybe you see it coming in your heart. When you don't act it out, there's some equanimity there. When then you take that uh, uh, um, equanimity and you turn it towards your own heart and you watch the whatever is going on there, the anger or the rippling of the heart and the mind, and de develop a little more balance around what's going on in your own heart. It says that equanimity disarms the compulsion to react with greed or aversion. It disarms the compulsion to react. So you all have had and known some measure of equanimity when you see that you're about to say something or you're about to do something, but you put that Dharma duct tape on your mouth and you just don't let it out because that's the better thing to do in the moment. Maybe there's another time when you say something, you might say the same thing without anger or without rancor, but uh, it disarms that compulsion. His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls this the real disarmament, the inner disarmament, that if we were all able to have this inner disarmament, um, we wouldn't need all of those bombs that could blow up this earth many times over. When we become familiar with this inner terrain through our mindfulness practice, aided by equanimity, when we know the terrain of aversion, we know the terrain of any form of reactivity, we see it coming before it completely takes hold of the mind. And sometimes we can see it at the very beginning. So when, when it's caught at the very beginning, it's kind of like nipped in the bud. So it doesn't have time to be a full-blown attack. Some, sometimes you may see that in yourself just with mindfulness. Mindfulness is always aided by the beautiful qualities of mind, metta, uh, equanimity, uh, kind of good energy to be able to be with what's happening, calm, tranquility, all of these beautiful qualities, especially equanimity can help to nip things in the bud so they don't get so full-blown. So resting the mind before it falls into extremes, it's like seeing it coming around the corner and knowing. Mother Teresa of Calcutta was very aware of her inner world. I saw and read through a particular prayer that I'll read to you. She was aware of her desires and her fears. And in her own uh, beautiful Catholic tradition, she asked for help around the pitfalls of her heart, of her mind, around greed and around fear. So she says in, in her eloquent prayer, deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering re rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I love her humanness. I've always loved her humanness. And I'm struck by her humility that enables her to be honest 
about what's going on inside her heart. The honesty of knowing that inner terrain so well, so well that when it comes around, we don't have to be so caught in it, so identified with it. So if there were that spaciousness and that clarity that allows this ability to notice honestly what's going on, the inner events in the, of our inner world, when we're not caught in denial or delusion or ignorance, this is spiritual intelligence. When we're not caught in denial, when we're not caught in ignorance or in delusion, this is spiritual intelligence. And this is what we're developing here. So that's why, you know, for some of you, uh, we've um, tried to make the point that it's, it's really important to open to more than just one thing. It's really important to open to more than just the breath because we learn more about ourselves. We understand more about this human condition. And we see that this human condition that we open to within ourselves is like anyone else's. The fears, the attachments, the love, the hate, the joy, the sorrow. So as His Holiness the Dalai Lama again says, in this state of mind, of equanimity, that openness, you can deal with situations with calmness and reason, not with reactivity. But say you've already reacted to a situation in your life, uh, and it's already gone out of your mouth, or the action has already been taken, and there was no ability to see that experience with equanimity. Whatever the event was in your family, in your community, political situation, your job, you've already reacted. I, I always uh, feel grateful that I have a second chance, that if I've blown it because I've just blown my top about something, then I have a second chance to just look inward and look at my own heart and develop equanimity around what's going on there. It already happened out there. Now I can turn around and know what's going on in here and develop equanimity around that reactivity that already happened. So if there was some holding on, some righteous indignation, some kind of fear that was going on, or some agitation, that I reacted out of, can I bring my attention right here and see what was going on, develop some equanimity around that? Because if I don't, as one person in the hall said this morning, there could be the aversion to the aversion, and then the aversion to the aversion to the aversion. Many, many layers, one layer upon another, making this karmic knot that when we come to practice, we feel and we begin to untangle the knot, loosening it up. So I want to give an example of this. In a conversation with someone, this is not Steve. Um, <laughs> so in a conversation with someone uh, recently, a few months ago, there were um, some very strong emotions that were part of both of our, conversa both of our um, conversations with each other. The, the tempers were heated and um, words were exchanged that uh, were, were still in right speech, but you know, there was a lot of <clears throat> underneath it. So I was noticing how strongly that person felt about the, the angle that she was holding fast to. And um, also, I noticed what was going on inside of me. But first, more predominantly, was noticing that situation outside of myself, noticing what was going on with her. And it was, and it was pretty strong, you know, her need to be right about something. So, of course, you know, 
I was there too with that. But noticing that with her, I thought, okay, she feels pretty strong about this. That's how it is with her. And I, I thought to myself, can I, can I accept that? Yeah, that's fine. People have strong opinions about something. I could make my room in my heart for the fact that she felt strong about that. So fine, it's okay. So then it went on a little more and I didn't feel totally balanced. And just by habit, I turned to my own heart and I saw, well, what was going on here was I was pretty attached to my point of view too. I felt clinging and attachment and I didn't feel so good about how the conversation was going and aversion was happening also. So I thought, this is the way it is here, too, in my heart. And because I knew this is the way it was in my own heart, I thought, I'd better not say anymore. Maybe this should wait for another time. So I said to her, I'm not feeling so clear right now. I think I need time to think about this. I'd better not speak anymore. I feel a little confused. So I was being truthful with what was going on. So she replied, yeah, you seem confused. <laughs> and so, <laughs> of course, that brought up more, you know, in my own heart to like, but I held my tongue and I thought, well, this should wait for sure now, this should wait. <laughs> so that's the far enemy, which is, all those things are reactivity, you know, reacting, not feeling in balance, not having the spaciousness of our heart to include whatever life is presenting to us. Um, so aversion, attachment, all the different forms. Another extreme, uh, one of the opposites of equanimity is called the near enemy. It's called that because it seems like equanimity, but it's not. It's like sometimes pretending to be equanimous. And this can be a feeling of indifference or apathy. It can feel like a distancing uh, from what's happening. Sometimes people describe it in themselves as a callousness, a cold kind of callousness. I don't care. It's a, a feeling of I don't care. And so when we feel this in ourselves, this is the near enemy. And as someone brought up earlier today, how about this? When, when we feel this in our hearts, how can we bring some balance here? Well, the moment of noticing it, being truthful with ourselves, noticing that it's happening, will usually bring us back to some kind of balance where we can have some wise discernment. And maybe we can incline the mind to connect a little more connect a little more to what's going on with that person, if it's the right thing to do, if it's appropriate. So the practice is to be honest, to be clear with that inner feeling, no matter what it is. This is how it is right now. Even when we're not so connected, can we come to that place and know this is how it is right now? So that's basically that's apathy indifference, the near enemy. And this is something to watch out for in our practice. We need to ask ourselves, do I feel connected or disconnected? Is there a distance or is, is, can there be an intimacy with what's happening? Because equanimity allows you to feel what's going on, but it doesn't stick. It's just like the experience arises in the field of uh, awareness, the field of experience, and it just can come and go without sticking there. So this is the difference between uh, equanimity and apathy. Apathy feels cold, and the person you want to close down, turn away, not pay attention to. Apathy is looking away. Uh, equanimity, one of the um, translations of upeka, which is a Pali word for equanimity, is looking on or looking toward, but apathy is looking away. 
So equanimity has this enormous strength that allows the practice to move more deeply into the liberating truths of life and experience to what they call um, this great strength of equanimity that allows the mind and heart to be at what they call the doorway to peace, the doorway to Nibbana. And the Buddha described this place as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. And when there's this uh, strong equanimity that brings us to this place, there's really the ability to see all formations, whatever phenomena is arising and passing away in the field of experience, seeing it as coming and going, seeing the impermanent nature of everything. And when that is seen, there's no need to hold on. There's no need to push away. It just takes its course. We respond appropriately. I have this vision that gives me um, an inner sense of what it is to feel equanimity when I think of this experience that I had during one of my last visits with Manindraji <coughs> some years ago when I visited him in, in India. And we had gone to some of the holy places in India. And this was our last day together. Um, we were going to take a plane from Varanasi and back to Kolkata uh, <clears throat> so that I could go home and he could go to his home in Kolkata. Manindra always wanted me to go with him on the Ganges River to, as only your Buddhist teacher would want you to do, to see the dead bodies floating on the river. Because um, <laughs> this is a teaching to open to death in that way. And so to see the, the rawness of life in, in those kinds of um, places of the world, because sometimes we're just so surrounded by comfort and glitter. It's a great teaching to open to whatever the rawness of the world opens us to. So we went to the Ganges, and uh, we hired a boat to go down the river. And it was at dawn. It was just before dawn. And um, as we were going down the river with Manindra at my side and two of my Dharma friends, we were <clears throat> on the banks of the, close to the banks of the river. We're on the right side. We saw the burning ghats with the bodies um, on the pyres of wood. Uh, burning away, pretty close enough to see that. So here on the right side was death. And on the left side, the sun was rising over the banks and the horizon of the great Ganges River. And so this beautiful globe coming up on the right, the birth of a new day, and death on my right. And as we were going down the river, it was just um, so obvious for me to take that as a teaching. Can my heart and mind hold this? Can it be big enough to hold birth and death in one breath, in one moment of time? And also, on my left was Manindraji. And we were, he was holding my hand, I was holding his hand. Sort of a rare thing, you know, to be that close to a teacher, to your teacher. And so just so much gratitude for his being in my life, in other people's lives, being able to have that closeness. And yet knowing that we were leaving, parting from each other that day, and I might not ever be able to see him again. So that kind of holding the gratitude and holding the sorrow that we would part and not see each other again. Manindra himself was, you know, had tears. To see the beauty of life, to take in the beauty of that, 
to have friends with you, my dear Dharma friends, in the same boat with me. And yet, you know, on the banks of the river, people had lost their loved ones. And to take that in and to see, you know, they've lost their loved ones. They, mm, they're not going through the happiness of feeling um, that we can be together with our friendship. They're going through a great sorrow. So can I hold that too together in the same breath? The beauty and the rawness, the birth and the death, the happiness and the sorrow, the new day, the ending for some. Can we hold it all with a spaciousness, with a graciousness, with a balance, with an even-mindedness, resting the mind before it falls into extremes, with a deep steadiness like a rock. So this is what our practice asks of us. We may not be there all the time, but we can develop it. We can incline the mind and heart there. So many times that it can go there naturally. So let's sit for a moment. So I'd like to end with parts of this beautiful piece from the third Zen patriarch. The great way is not difficult for those who aren't, who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. Cling to a hairbreadth of distinction and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. Because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace and all errors will disappear. By themselves. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.